one of the things that I understood is that you don't exist unless you're in the literature, and and that doesn't include history books. And the black people in in California, they just weren't remembered. They nobody was telling their stories. From Chicago, this is the Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, she's only been in the studio five minutes and she's just shot somebody already, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, we're sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of Carl Franklin's Devil in a Blue Dress, which is celebrating its 25th anniversary this month. Nakia, what, if anything, do you know about this movie? Uh, not much at all, other than Denzel. Denzel. So, as I said last week, Devil with a Blue Dress is the rare movie from a black director with a predominantly black cast that you have not already seen. Mm-hmm. I think I've got one other that fits that criteria on our list, and then, then I'll be out <laughs> okay. of black movies to introduce you to. Uh, so that's one reason I wanted to watch it, even though it's probably a little outside the official scope of our project. Mm-hmm. It's not a film that everybody has seen, quote-unquote. In fact, it's a film that hardly anyone saw when it came out. Despite decent to good reviews, it completely bombed at the box office, not even making back its meager budget. Hmm. It opened the weekend of the OJ verdict, which is one of the things Denzel thinks (laughs) didn't help the movie any. People were turned off of black people? Or maybe just distracted, or I don't know. Um, And it also opened a week or two before waiting... Waiting to exhale. Uh, Waiting to exhale. Sure. So in terms of both the black audience going to see this Mm -hmm. and probably a lot of theaters not going to show two black movies at the same time at that point, uh, I don't imagine that helped this movie either. And I won't make any kind of claim that it's some sort of great essential cinematic classic either. Uh, I do think it's a good, very underseen, underrated movie with some elements that I do think are great. I think it deserves to be better known. I think it deserved much better than it got at the box office. And as I also mentioned last week, it probably should have and was intended to launch at least a small franchise. It's based on the first book in best-selling author Walter Mosley's series about L.A. private detective Ezekiel Easy Rollins. And I think there are 14 of those books to date. At the time this movie was made, there were three or four of them, and they had optioned all of the books. They had intended to make more of these movies, but mm. then obviously when it bombed, that was not going to happen. But it's it, it would have been an interesting character. That I think the the books this one start this one takes place in 1948. I think the latest Easy Rollins book takes him up through about 1968. Hmm. So it's you know a whole span of history that it would have been interesting to see Denzel play this character over the years. Yeah. I know there have been various efforts to bring this character to television. NBC at one point announced they were doing an Easy Rollins series. That never happened. I'm sure it will happen one of these days, unless, which is very possible, Walter Mosley is just burned out on Hollywood at this point. 
But another reason I wanted to watch this movie or rewatch this movie is that you and I are currently watching and I'm writing about the HBO series Lovecraft Country, Mm -hmm. which is taking these traditional, almost exclusively white pulp fiction, in that case, horror and sci-fi tropes and repurposing them to be about the black American experience. Mm -hmm. And I think Devil in a Blue Dress, although this is playing it straighter, I think Lovecraft Country is very self-aware of what playing with those tropes. This is playing it straighter. But I think it could still be seen as part of that same continuum. I mean, this sort of the hard-boiled film noir detective story, it's one of those essential American pop culture styles with very familiar, iconic types and tropes and beats. Um, We've watched a few of them already. We watched The Maltese Falcon, The Big Sleep, Double Indemnity, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I think... We've talked about this a little bit. I think that those types of stories are already about social transgression to some extent. The plots of those things tend to cross a lot of different classes and worlds, you know, often come about because somebody from the wealthy side of town got mixed up with something on the bad side of town, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The rich socialite falls in with the wrong crowd or whatever. A lot of those plots center around that. And the hero is the guy who can navigate across all those different social strata. Um, You know, he gets hired by the millionaires, but he's comfortable in the, the lower class dives. He knows all the cops. He knows all the criminals. He can negotiate between all those different worlds. But that hero has traditionally been a white male. So I think I think interesting things happen when you change that formula. I mean, you have a deep and abiding love for the big Lebowski, which is the Coen brothers saying, what happens if we take this stoner bowler and plop him down in one of those stories? Mm-hmm. So obviously, I think if you take a black man and set him down in the middle of that genre, it's going to change it completely. Anyway, I think that's I think that's true in any genre, right? I mean, it's if we look at almost any genre, we can say it's predominantly white. And if you take whether it's an action movie or a rom com or whatever it is, if you put black protagonists in it, it changes the story. I mean, I even think back to we when we were doing the series for the blog, we did Night of the Living Dead, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which George Romero claims was, was never even intended yeah. to be about race. Right. But then he went and hired Dwayne Jones for that lead role, and that completely changed what the movie was about. Right. I think it's an interesting question of, like, can you insert black characters or characters of color into these more traditional, quote-unquote, traditional roles, and they not then be somehow refracted through race? Because to your point earlier, a lot of these genres and a lot of the tropes of these genres depend on a certain amount of, like, quote-unquote neutrality. Like, it, the detective character assumes a level of invisibility, mm-hmm. a level of... Passability. Passability, pass social fluidity, worlds. like, they can move in and out of spaces and mm-hmm. be fairly innocuous, non-threatening, whatever it is. And that automatically changes if, for example, it's a black man. And that's something I think this movie is doing very consciously. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it didn't... I, I, we're talking about, I guess, a couple of different things, because it's not just taking hiring a black actor and right. putting it in the existing narrative. Right. This is a black narrative, and it takes place... It centers on the black worlds, and then it's about what happens when he has to go mm. transgress into the white world in the mm-hmm. midst of this investigation. Mm-hmm. So it is sort of switching that formula. 
But I also just think it it also illustrates that there are just all these stories that have not been told. Absolutely. Right? I mean, that's one of the great things about this movie is that it recreates this, you know, the 1948 or the post-war Los Angeles of this noir setting Mm -hmm. is a world we've seen a million times. This is recreating the black world of that time period, which is not something Mm -hmm. that we see. Mm -hmm. And again, I think you can say that about any genre. Yeah. I mean, you take the whitest, like, you know, British period pieces, mm. right? Where it's like, like that is traditionally the most lily white genre yeah. you can imagine. Yeah. There have been black people in England. Yes. <laughs> forever. We've been around. Right. Um, <laughs> I just, I and I didn't know this, and apparently they made a series of it. Jane Austen's, the book she was working on when she died, and she had just barely started kind of outlining it, mm-hmm. had her first character of color in it. Oh, I know that. Um, who was like a West Indian mixed race heiress that came to this little English village. And I think they just, I haven't seen the TV series they just made of it. Hmm. But So yeah, that's these are stories that could have been told, but you can name on one hand, like the films in that genre right. and in most genres that actually center black characters. Right, right. Or any other really ca- characters of color for that matter. Um, mm. It's not just only black stories, it's indigenous stories. It's all, I mean... And even ones that center, particularly American stories, we say, oh, well, they're not centering black people. I mean, an even more glaring omission is the centering of indigenous stories, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like, so, I mean, it's, history is written by the victors. And so mm-hmm. that tend, when we talk about our heroes, that's, that's usually the reflection that we get. Okay, so all of that, I think, makes this movie worth revisiting and talking about. Um, we'll, we'll see what you think of it. I think it's a good movie. I think there's a couple of problems with it. One big casting slash character problem, I think, undermines the film. We'll see if you agree on what that is once we get there. Okay. Oh, I was going to play you. Uh, Issa Rae introduced this film for AFI recently, <laughs> mm-hmm. and here's what she had to say. It's very brief. I have the distinct honor of introducing today's movie, which is Devil in a Blue Dress. Now, Devil in a Blue Dress is special not only for its film noir cinematic thrilling mystique but it is also the movie that introduced me to denzel washington's fineness <laughs> as easy rollins if you don't feel something watching him walk around the city in that tank then something is wrong with you so 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 talk to me about denzel washington i mean he's denzel i mean it's, it's denzel and it's- <laughs> Like, he is, Denzel's just a, a, he really is a brilliant actor, and he has played some characters that are just, like, in the firmament (laughs) of culture. Uh, Yeah, I mean, and it's, like, Denzel absolutely is fine, but Denzel's always been one of those people for me, or one of, I guess, one of those men for me, that, like... I almost respect him too much to be like, oh, that's a sexy man. But, like, Denzel is obviously, there's no question that Denzel is a fine man. Uh, But I've never, I don't know that I've seen a film of his that I've been like, oh, hey, Denzel, what you doing? Having said that, he he was... And this is terrible, but I did find him attractive as Malcolm X. But that I probably, no, I have, you can't, you can't. I think I have a Malcolm X after thing. Malcolm X. <laughs> I think I have. It's like he, I projected whatever Malcolm X thing I had. That's on just him. wrong. Uh, he was really good looking in that. He was even good looking in like his zoot suit period in that. Film. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, Denzel's fineness is without question. His talent is without question. But I also just respect him too much as um, an actor. 
to, you know, reduce him to that. I mean, it's just, but he, like, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see what you think of him in this one. Uh, also of Don Cheadle, who mm. I think almost runs away with this movie. This was his, I mean, he'd made a lot of stuff before this, but I think this is what catapulted him mm-hmm. into real fame. Another movie great actor. Who I think is actually underrated. Don um, Cheadle, he won he's a the great LA actor. Film Critics Award for this. He mm-hmm. won, I think, the National Film Critics Award for Supporting Actor. And it is just a great performance of a great character in this. Mm. I think Denzel has said, complained about like watching Don Cheadle like run away with this movie. <laughs> okay, I don't have much else to say up front. Uh, let's go watch the movie. Okay. All right. So, you want the job? It depends on what kind of job it is. I'm just looking for somebody. Destiny Monet. Fiance of Todd Carter. She likes jazz and pig's feet and dark meat. Know what I mean? An offer he should have refused. Why don't you tell me about your friend, Daphne? Colored woman ain't good enough for you no more, honey. What time did you leave Greta James' house this morning? What you mean? She's not going to be waking up, Ezekiel. A mystery no one wants solved. The incumbent mayor, the chief of police, close personal friends of mine. That's good, Mr. Carter, and they can help us find it. No, they can't. In a world divided by black and white. What do you know about a dead white man in a cabin over in Laurel Canyon? Easy Rollins has just crossed the line. This is Daphne Monet. You looking for me? Do you know who I am? I know you're running for mayor against Todd Carter. I am the next mayor, Mr. Rollins. If you connect a mole to two murders, you're gonna do whatever I tell you to do. You know you know more than you're letting on. Unless I give the cops a killer by tomorrow morning, I'm going to jail. Denzel Washington is Easy Rawlins. Devil in a blue dress. And we're back. During the break, Nakia and I watched Devil in a Blue Dress. Nakia, maybe to start with these, you know, film noir detective stories, I always think it's good to summarize the plot right off the top. So maybe you could just do that for us. So this is my problem with film noirs, and it makes <laughs> film noirs fundamentally a, a difficult genre for me. All the twists and the turns and the backstabbing and the... Pe- I just never can keep it all straight. And it doesn't even seem like you're really supposed to. No, I don't think... You're I just think supposed that's, to I think that's a feature, not a bug. And then eventually everything will sort of get... Maybe get tied up at the end. So, yeah, I... No. I, I think it's part of the whole, you know, sort of existential angst mm-hmm. of film noir that mm-hmm. you don't, you you literally can't right. completely understand right. the story. I think if you come out of any of these with a firm grasp on exactly what happened and who did what to, then something has gone wrong. These are just people with much more interesting lives. And I just, <laughs> so many different motivations and relationships. Every I, like, And maybe I'm being naive about the people in my life, but I think I know generally. <laughs> <laughs> where everybody falls. Um, so, yeah, I just... Yeah. 
It's just a lot of names. So this is about, you know, there's like blackmail. There's like kitty porn Right, pictures. which is just sort of thrown in like, oh, what? Can we right. talk about what's happening there? And I thought I understood it until we watched it. And then I sat down afterwards and I'm like, okay, so she got the pictures from that guy. And then so blackmail that dude. S- somehow so that- she ended up with the pictures and then they killed her. And it's it's very confusing. To run for mayor. And it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot going on. It's a lot. Okay, but, all right. So, in general, how did this movie work for you? I enjoyed it. I thought it was very entertaining. I, it's a it's a better movie, actually, than yeah. I had remembered it being. Yeah, I wouldn't have... I didn't watch it and go, oh, that's why it didn't right. do well. Um, I don't know why. I, did. I mean, it's... I, was, I watched it, and I was kind of wishing, like, I wish this was the pilot the episode two, of an HBO yeah. series. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I wish there were two or three more of these that yeah. I could watch. Yeah. No, I thought it was really good. Yeah. Okay, I guess we're done. All right. Good episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start with the basic milieu of the film, because I think that's what everybody talked about. Okay. Um, like, Roger Ebert, I think he gave it three stars, and he said, you know, he wasn't at all interested in following the story, mm-hmm. but just the creation of the world mm-hmm. was impressive. Um, and I've got a quote. This is David Anson in Newsweek. Film noir style was born in Los Angeles in the 40s, think double indemnity in the big sleep, and the images have proved so indelible that it's now hard to think of that city in that time, separate from the shadow street look of Hollywood thrillers. Now, in Carl Franklin's Devil in a Blue Dress, we're back in 48 LA, but as you settle into the familiar pleasures of its noir plot, you realize you're in a part of town Hollywood has neglected to show. It's Central Avenue, the hub of post-war black LA, a vital jazz and blues-infused community brought to vivid life by Franklin. The evocation of that vanished world alone is worth the price of admission. And I think that's true. I think this has, this movie has such an incredibly strong sense of place, mm-hmm. um, and that's so important to mm-hmm. the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked a little bit about Lovecraft Country, and it's sort of the similar sort of world building. In the case of Lovecraft Country, it's like Black Chicago, and the the idea that there are these sort of two worlds in a city, and mm-hmm. one that is usually not seen or d- is dismissed or is assumed to be somehow lacking in life. Right. Um, and so it was really good to see the neighborhood that, that Denzel lives in, because it was... That could have been any neighborhood. It just happened to be the black neighborhood. It was those were homes and those were families right. and their kids playing outside and, you know, people taking pride in their lawn. And But we haven't seen that. And we hadn't seen it from before. this period. Right. And it no longer exists. That's mm. something they talked about when they made this movie is that Carl Franklin has talked about how that community doesn't exist anymore. Those buildings, those businesses don't exist anymore. He said the Watts riots Mm. destroyed about half of them. And then the 92 riots pretty much took out anything that was left. Mm -hmm. And they really had to go back to photographs and recreate that world from scratch. And he talked about being in those neighborhoods and saying how great it was for the people there that they got to take the bars off their windows for the first time oh, wow. ever. Well, and it was also interesting to see just the juxtaposition in class, right? Because you had Denzel's neighborhood, but then you had the neighborhood that, for example, Coretta's uh, boyfriend. Dupree, Dupree yes. lived in, which yeah. was very much like, that's typically what you saw if someone was saying, okay, we're going to go film a quote-unquote black neighborhood. Yeah, in that last half of the movie, we go from Denzel's yeah. neighborhood to... Junior's neighborhood mm-hmm. first, and then to Dupree's neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it is sort of going down that class yeah. ladder. Yeah. But Easy's house is very important to him. It is. If this is if this is a love story, it's between a man and his house. It, he's just trying to pay his mortgage. He's just trying to pay his mortgage. He just wants he's, to keep his home. As the first scene, we hear him referred to as, you know, the rare colored man who owns his own mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. 
And that's important to him. Mm -hmm. I first came out to Los Angeles when I got home from the war in Europe with $300 in my pocket and the GI Bill. Like me, a lot of colored folk from Texas and Louisiana had moved out to California to get them good jobs in the shipyards and in the aircraft companies. Hey, we're late. Now, me, myself, I was a machinist. And the first thing I did when I saved enough money was to buy me a house. Man, I love coming home to my house. I don't know. I guess maybe I just loved owning something. You know, he's, we see him gardening in his off hours and stuff like that, trying to keep his house up. And that's, that's his motivation for doing all of this. Yes, yes. The, the actual love story, which we'll get to, I think that's to me is the weak element of this mm. movie, but it's not about, it's not about the girl. No. It's about the house. Yes, yes. And how many people transgress on that house. Yes, there's a lot of violations over, of that over, space. Over the course of the film. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's, let's start. So just talk to me about Easy. Um, or Denzel, however you would like to approach this. <laughs> I mean, Denzel is, as is typical with Denzel, he is great in this film. Mm-hmm. I really like Denzel. Um, and, you know, Issa, was, he does look very good <laughs> in that white tank top. He may be built, the most sort of built I've probably ever seen him in a film. Probably. He's in pretty good shape Except in for, this I guess, movie. Hurricane, he would have. Yeah. But yeah, so he looks good. But yeah, I mean, Easy is, you know, a veteran who mm-hmm. came home with a GI Bill and, you know, $300 and is trying to try to make a place for himself in a country that rewarded other veterans with things that they were not rewarding black veterans. And he was able to buy a home and actually move from Texas to California where there were actually opportunities for mm-hmm. black folks to get jobs in factories and things like that. Um, and he's a machinist. He's me. a machinist. He's not a detective right. yet. This is no. the origin story. He is a machinist, but he gets laid off. And so we meet him looking for a job. Mm-hmm. So he can pay his mortgage. And he gets an offer from Mr. Albright. Tom I think the, I think the first line of the novel is, I was surprised to see a white man walk into Joppy's bar. Mm-hmm. And so right off the bat, it's like we're in these black spaces and mm-hmm. the transgression is the white man coming into that space. Mm-hmm. But yes, Tom Sizemore's Mr. Albright comes looking for him. A little, just run a little errand. Just offer him a job that he won't tell him what the job is, <laughs> which is always a bad sign. So, yeah, Albright offers him an easy job. He just has to get some information on where a girl is. Go find this white lady, we're told. That likes, has a, I believe he calls it a predilection. (laughs) A predilection for... Black men and Mm. black music and black everything. Right. Want the job? It depends on what kind of job it is. I don't want to get mixed up in that. Hmm. Walk out the door in the morning, easy. You're mixed up in something. Only thing that matters is if you're mixed up to the top or not. I'm just looking for somebody. For a friend. Daphne Monet. <clears throat> Fiance of Todd Carter. She's been gone two weeks. It upset the poor man so much he stopped running for mayor. I never laid eyes on That's a shame. See, Daphne has a predilection for the company of Negroes. She likes jazz and pig's feet and dark meat. Know what I mean? Election. Yeah. <laughs> I go looking for him myself, but not the right persuasion, so to speak. So, so again, just sort of flipping that usual formula. It's the the white man who needs a black man to navigate these spaces right. that he he can't go into. Right. You talked about that thing where the white man is the neutral figure. Mm-hmm. 
in this instance, he's not. He's right. right. He right. stands out in these places. He needs a black man to go in and look for this girl. Yeah. And what's so he tell? This is where the plot gets. So he tells Easy he's working for Carter. Carter, who was Kenny's running for mayor, but had since dropped. This out. guy running for mayor, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And he's just in love with her and wants her back. Make sure know. she's okay and yeah, yeah. no big deal. <laughs> totally on the up and up. So this is this is where we see a lot of these spaces that I don't think have been shown before. These sort of the illegal clubs, mm-hmm. the sort of off-hour speakeasies and things that he goes into, mm-hmm. looking for her. He he doesn't he doesn't have a lot of game at this point as a detective. No, I believe he enters the club saying, "Where do white women at?" <laughs> <laughs> so not super subtle. Uh, yeah, and it's just sort of asking, "Does anyone know?" Uh, he doesn't use her name. No, possibly. he says Dahlia, Dahlia or, or something Delilah, with a D. Yeah. Um, Pretending he doesn't know right, her real name. Yeah. This is so the extent of the subterfuge. Not yes. getting very much information from anyone, but it's clear that people know who he's referring to, yeah. but will not be telling him yeah. anything. So this is where he hooks up with Dupree and yes, Coretta. Coretta. Played by Lisa Nicole Carson. Carson, who, who is fantastic. She's amazing. She's I don't a, understand why she wasn't a huge star. So I, I think I remember that she um, struggled with mental illness. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. I, I vaguely remember that because I remember falling in love with her in Eve's Bayou. Mm-hmm. She was also phenomenal. Yep. She was um, Eric LaSalle's like ex-wife on ER. Mm. She had a recurring role on there. She's on Alan and again was just fantastic yeah. on there. Like yeah. just she's electric. a magnetic. She's just yeah. so magnetic. Um, but yeah, I believe she struggled with mental okay. illness. Um, but yeah, so and she is actually she oozes femme fatale. Like she really is <laughs> yes. that. Yes, she so is. she's just that character. Um, <laughs> Better get on home. You'd be sorry if you go. I'd be sorry if I stay too. Be nice, already. Daphne's sleep by now, so. You can't get none of that tonight. Go around here telling everybody, Dahlia. Miss Daphne. So it's sad that she And she looks at him like she wants to chew him up and spit him up. The friend of the femme fatale in this one, I guess. (laughs) But she knows Daphne and obviously has a relationship with Daphne and is also, you know, in need of some loving. So (laughs) In need of some loving, in need of some cash. Yeah. And she's gonna get both. Mm -hmm. And she does. Smart girl. With big stupid Dupree passed out passed out snoring in the next room poor Dupree he's just not very bright he is not and he can't hold his liquor (laughs) so yeah they spend a a pleasant evening and then what yeah so he so she tells him what he thinks he wants to know which is about that Daphne's hooked up with this guy Frank Mm -hmm. who's like a small time gangster hijacker good with a knife whatever right Um, so is this when he hooks back up with Albright yeah because he just he goes to give Albright the information Albright Albright turns out to be a problem. Albright is a problem. One, Albright asks him to come to Malibu to give this information. <laughs> so he's asking... The fuck, I'm going to drive all the way right. to Malibu. And he, I, think, I mean, he obviously knows what he's doing, right? Is he asking a black man to enter into a mostly white space mm-hmm. that creates a level of just unnecessary danger for Easy, And then Albright basically like pistol whips the white kids that are harassing Easy. And yeah. Just, yeah. It's the first sign of like, this is not someone you really want to be in business with. No. 
if there was ever any doubt. And he's even before this, Easy says, because we get the classic noir detective narration throughout mm-hmm. this movie, mm-hmm. Easy picks up on Albright's vibe right away. And what he says is, he reminds me of a guy I knew back in Texas named Mouse. Yep. And there are these mentions of Mouse throughout this movie that sort of warn us about Mouse's arrival yes. in the last half of the movie. But yeah, Albright's, Albright's a bit of a, a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Um, Does Tom Sizemore play non-psychopaths, really? Uh, saving Private Ryan. Oh, he wasn't he's, he's, right. he's a decent, I mean, you know, he kills a lot of people, but he's supposed to. So <laughs> In for country. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. So, I mean, we don't need, we don't need to go through this. I don't think we need to go through the, con, the all the convolutions of this plot. Let's pick up the few major characters here. We got the cops harassing mm-hmm. Easy. Anything to say about them? They were white cops harassing a black man. There's not a whole lot to say there. <laughs> There seems to be, a, I forgot, was it, what was that movie, Dressed to Kill, where cops harass people because they just basically don't want to do their jobs. Really, it's like, I don't really want to have to spend the time figuring out what's actually going on You're here. right. That is the so same I'm thing he's do, they're doing here. It's harass like, you so either, you go Either you out. solve the crime yeah. or we're going to arrest you for you. it. So that's just, <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> and it's a black man, so yeah, uh-huh, we're just going right. to arrest you. Um, so we got the cops. We got Albright. We got Tyrell, who's the other white man running for mayor. Yes. Who is a fan of the blacks. He, yes, apparently. he's a friend of the Negroes. Friend of the says. Negroes, yes. Um, but he's a super creepy dude. So, yeah, he has a little boy. When we meet him, <laughs> uh-huh. he's in the car with a little boy holding a stuffed animal. And he kisses the little boy on the cheek, I believe, or the little boy kisses him. Yeah, and he said, this is my, this is my adopted, adopted son. son. And then given what we find out about Terrell later in the film, that's... Mm-hmm. Unsettling. Yes. So. Um, and then eventually, somewhere in here, we meet Daphne. Let's talk about Daphne. The devil in the blue dress. Yes. Yes. So Daphne is supposed to be our femme fatale, mm-hmm. played by Jennifer Beals. And so when I saw who was playing the role, <laughs> I was like, Jennifer Beals is half black. Yeah. So this is where I said earlier, I think there's a big glaring problem with one character in this movie it's that character mm-hmm. i think i think jennifer beals is miscast mm-hmm. because everybody knows jennifer beals <laughs> is biracial <laughs> so the whole central mystery of this movie is that this woman is passing and it's supposed to be a revelation right that she's actually half black that's what the whole plot hinges on and we we, we sort the of know that yeah, the whole that. time we're watching her yeah and then I think the part is just weirdly underwritten. Mm, mm-hmm. Like there in the book, he actually has an affair with her. They sleep together. There's mm-hmm. all there's much more of that character in the book. Mm-hmm. And here it's all like it's been reduced down to as little as possible. Mm-hmm. We never we're always very far away from that character. We she never becomes more than this sort of distant right femme fatale figure, like a phantom basically through right. the whole film. Yeah. And what else did she tell you about me? I don't know. What else is there to tell? Nothing. I make no apology for my feelings for Frank. He's very dear to me, and that's that. Bourbon? Please, straight up. So how well did you know Coretta? She was a very close friend. So maybe you know why she got killed? Why would I know that? Said she was a very close friend. She knew about you and Frank. Maybe somebody wanted to keep that secret. Mr. Rollins, if you're thinking... Easy. You can call me easy. 
Easy, if you're thinking that Frank had anything to do with Coretta's death, and obviously you don't know very much about him. Frank doesn't go around beating people up. He prefers to use a knife as his weapon. And what do you prefer to use as your weapon? Well, why don't you search me and find out? Um, and it's weird. I don't know why they did that. And it some of it makes me wonder if they just weren't happy with her performance. Mm. Because there's scenes that happen off screen. Mm-hmm. At the end of the movie, he talks about how she told him her whole, whole story. about, yeah. And it's like, that's a scene that we probably should have seen. <laughs> that right. should have been her big confession speech scene. And he just covers it in narration. Yeah. Like, it's, it's like that whole thing. It's like as much of that character as possible has been cut from this movie. And I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a difference in, you know, even just the brief time that Lisa Nicole Carson is given in the oh, film. No she contest. Just makes such a, she makes such, to me, much of a, a stronger impression than Jennifer Beals. And so I don't know if it's, they decided to scale the role back for whatever reason mm-hmm. because they wanted to focus on something else or if it was anything about her performance or what. They wanted her to remain a mystery and maybe they wanted us to be removed from her so that we never quite understood where her alliances lie. So that's possible. But yeah, I didn't... I feel like there should have been this, like, oh, she's biracial, and oh my god, like the, all, and then feeling what that means to be a black woman trying to pass and marry a mayor for all, right, <laughs> and like trying to marry like, the white really, future mayor you know, of Los Angeles, move into this sort of quote unquote upper echelon of society, right, mm-hmm. and like all all that that would have meant. I do think we're a little robbed of that. Like, we don't get that. And maybe it part of it is that because we know that she's biracial as an actress, and so maybe that diminishes some of that. I don't know. But, yeah. yeah. It's strange. And I do, th- I do think that's the one weakness of this movie is that that whole storyline just doesn't quite mm-hmm. work the way it should. Mm-hmm. And you don't get that noir thing of, like, the hero conflicted about he's in love with the woman, right. but... You know, all this. Like, you don't, no. he doesn't really care about her that much. No. Again, he cares about the house. <laughs> the house I gotta pay my mortgage. is the love story. Yeah. Um. Okay, and then, you know, let's go ahead and talk about Mouse. I love Mouse. <laughs> Mouse is the best. <laughs> Mouse is... <laughs> so, I think I've said on this podcast before, know your crew. Yes, exactly. If you're going to invite people into a life of crime with you, you need to know your crew know the people that you're working with, know their temperaments, know that these are people that are not going to fuck shit up. Here's the thing. Denzel knew exactly who yes, the fuck did. Mouse was. The book makes very clear, in fact, I think Easy says it outright, Easy left Texas to get away from Mouse. Because <laughs> Mouse scared the shit out of him, and Mouse was just nothing but trouble. And the only way Easy could get away from him was to go to California. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, and this is the thing with Mouse, in the book he also says, I never felt safer than when I was running with Mouse. Oh, yeah. No, Mouse is, yeah. Because Mouse is ride or die. He is. And he is at the ready. Like, <laughs> we got to kill somebody? Let's let's just go ahead and I don't really have time to be messing around. Like, we got to kill him, right? So, yes, you want Mouse on your crew, but you need you have to know. <laughs> you got to keep a tight rein. But even then, like, he's going to shoot someone. <laughs> so you need to be prepared for that. <laughs> that has to, his first scene has to be one of the great it character so introductions great. ever. It was so great. Because <laughs> he walks in, it's, Denzel's been fighting with Frank. Mm-hmm. Frank is, like, basically on top of him slitting his throat. Mouse comes in and 
has a gun at his head. Yeah. And Mouse has no idea what right. is happening no. here. He doesn't know who this guy is. He doesn't know who the girl is he's talking about. But Mouse just jumps right in with both feet. Like it's, you know. Yes. It's his deal too. Mouse does not need onboarding, <laughs> which is always helpful. As a manager, I appreciate people who can just like, I don't need on. Like, let's just get to the get. <laughs> but he does this awesome fake out where he ha- <laughs> Frank is sitting in the chair and Mouse is threatening him with the gun the whole Denzel's time. Denzel's asking him questions, trying to get information out of him. And he's not answering. And Mouse is just like, okay, let me try. <laughs> he puts his gun away and it looks like he's going to try to talk to Frank. And then he just reaches behind his back, pulls out another gun and, and shoots him <laughs> in the shoulder. That was the interrogation gun. It was perfect. It was so, like, I just don't have time for this. Frank. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Let, let me try. Now look here, Frank. It's, it's Frank, right? Yeah. Frank? What's wrong with you, man? Don't you ever grab me when I got a gun in my hand. Shit. You got blood on my coat, easy. It's a damn expensive coat. Where's your bathroom at, man? Is it in there? Find that girl so we can get that money, huh? Hell no, we don't have to go find nobody. I done changed my mind. I don't need your kind of help, Mouse. Boy, look at you. Man, cut a damn smile in your neck. You gonna tell me you don't need my kind of help? See, this is the same shit you pulled five years ago when you killed old man never shedding them. You ain't even been in my house five minutes and you done shot somebody already, Mouse. Come on, Easy. Come in on this thing, man. Easy, I'm trying to do right. I'm, I mean, you know, now. Come on, man, I can help you. Now, you know you're going to need somebody at your back. I swear I'm going to let you run the show. Oh, you going to let me run the show? Well, I ain't going to do nothing you don't tell me to do. <laughs> you nothing. You going to let me run the show. You going to do everything I say? Man, I'm going to do everything you say. That's the wrong hand, Mom. You need to start answering some questions. <laughs> Ew, and then he's like, I got blood on my jacket. I don't have to look. No, he says, you got blood on my jacket to Denzel. You made me shoot that guy and get blood on my jacket. It's perfect. It's per- And in that moment, Denzel's like, oh, I should not have... Okay, well, let's go back. I, I, I meant to mention that. Because what makes him call Mouse is Albright entering his house. Yes. We talked about that transgression. Yes. yes. Right? Because Denzel's been pretty level dealing with all mm-hmm. of these people mm-hmm. until he comes home and they're in his fucking house. Yeah. And it pisses him off. Yeah. Because that's his space. He bought it. He owns it. These fucking white men are sitting in his house trying to push him around. Eating his food. And that's when he's like, fuck it, I'm going to call Mouse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And yes, he regrets that decision about three minutes after like, Mouse oh, shows up. That's what this is going to be. <laughs> and it's that way the whole time Mouse is there. <laughs> Mouse is shoot first. And not even really ask questions later. Just shoot. No, just, just shoot first. Just shoot first. <laughs> Let's just. He's, he's very efficient. 
he does pick this movie up in the yes, second Yes, he does. He brings some much-needed humor. And it's just an interesting character. Like, it's just... I think it's a little bit of a different character. Like, it's not a character you necessarily expect in a noir. Mm-hmm. It's, he's a little bit different. But yeah, I mean, Don Cheadle just does amazing with that. <laughs> it's so great. I love that scene. At, so, when we get to the big shootout in the end, mm-hmm. he and Mouse go to rescue Daphne. They've got Joppy, the bar owner, in the car. And they get there, and Mouse is just like, I'm just going to go ahead and shoot this guy, okay? <laughs> just to, like, get it out of the way. He's like, let's just go ahead and shoot this guy now. And then I was like, no, don't shoot him. You know, just tie him up. Right. Like, tie him up, put him in the trunk. Tie him up, put him in the trunk. And then Denzel goes up to the house and ends up in this shootout. And then when he comes back, eh, not how that went. Right. He's like, where's Joppy? (laughs) And Mouse is like, oh, he's over there. (laughs) Dead in the woods. What happened? I had no time to be tying him up easy. What? You just said don't shoot him, right? That's right. Well, I didn't. I just, I, I choked him. What? Well, how am I going to help you out if I'm, if I'm back here fooling around with him now? Easy, look, if you ain't want to kill, why'd you leave him with me? And it's basically, well, I didn't have time to be worried about tying him up. So you told me not to shoot him. It was just him. inefficient. It was just like, I needed to be up there helping you. I couldn't also be here watching him and tying him up. I didn't shoot him. You told me not to shoot him. I didn't shoot him. And then he has the classic line. He says, easy, if you ain't want him killed, why'd, why'd you, you leave, leave him, him with me? me? And, it's and just, he's, he plays it. Cheeto plays it like he's honestly it's confused. totally straight. Like, just you totally left this guy straight. alone with me. Totally straight. What did you think was going to happen? This is my skill set. <laughs> so I don't know why you thought. Yeah, I could watch about 10 movies with just Easy and Mouse. Yes. Going on adventures. Well, he's respectful. He didn't even like, he is, there is an honor to him mm-hmm. because he really is, this is what you call me on here to do. This is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even going to take, steal money. Like, I'm going to give you no, your No, in fact, at the end of the movie, he's, Mouse is the one who gets the money yep. that they've been promised from Daphne. And he says, he says, I knew you were too much of a softy to ask her for it. Yep. So I asked her for it. Here's your half. So Mouse is the only reason yep. Easy gets paid at all at the end of this movie. It's just a business transaction. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you get me money. So if you need me to come out again, <laughs> just give me a call. Apparently, uh, and I haven't read all of the books, but I know at one point Walter Mosley tried to kill Mouse off. Oh, and no. he was way too popular a character. Yeah, no. So he had to like, Mouse faked his death or something. <laughs> he brought Mouse back. <laughs> you can't kill Mouse. <laughs> all right. What else? So what, do you think Joppy actually killed Coretta? He probably beat her up but didn't know that he killed her. Cause they I, th- s- I think there's a little bit of a question about whether Daphne did that. Would Daphne have been able to whoop Coretta's ass, though? I mean, looking at the two of them, I would say no. I would That's say, what I would... I would say Coretta would absolutely kick Daphne's ass. So I could see Joppy going and, and beating her up and not realizing that he, you know, gave her, like, a contusion or something. And she... Cause they said she... But Joppy, right up until he's left alone with Mouse, <laughs> says, I didn't, I didn't kill, kill her, her. Yeah. if... She, Daphne, told you I did. She's lying. Yeah. So I think, and again, it just, I come back to that character just being such a we don't black know, yeah. hole, we don't no know. pun intended, yeah. in the middle of this movie that it, it almost doesn't even become important. Mm-hmm. It's like in the Maltese Falcon, that's what it was all about was, you know, he loved her, but she killed his partner. And mm-hmm. he had, like, it, it feels like that should be part of the story of that character here, and it just isn't somehow. Mm-hmm. 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 She was still convinced, though, that her Negro blood didn't matter. Now that Terrell couldn't use it to keep the man she wanted to marry out of the mass race. She was in love and couldn't see for dreaming. 
any better than the rest of us, I guess. Because even though we had fought a war to keep the world free, the color line in America worked both ways, and even a rich white man like Todd Carter was afraid to cross it. So here's an interesting point. I don't know. See what we do with this. Um, and I think this cross again crosses over with Lovecraft Country a little bit. Several people have written about this movie as being about sort of the lie of the Great Migration. Um, this is from a scholarly article by William Covey called The Genre Don't Know Where It Came From, African-American Neo-Noir Since the 1960s. And he talks about the end of the movie where Easy has that line about how the color line works both ways in L.A. because, mm-hmm. you know, the mayor could not marry. Even the richest man in town couldn't marry Daphne. Couldn't yeah. marry Daphne. Right. And what Covey says is Easy's tone and insight serve as a lament for race relations in the North. He claims Daphne returns to Louisiana in order to oh that's right Daphne Daphne and Frank go back to Louisiana at the end of the movie too okay and earlier in the movie we saw some of Easy's neighbors leaving town too right they said they're going back to Texas right, right? California's too up fast on, or something yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. okay so Easy's tone and insight serve as a lament for race relations in the north he claims Daphne returns to Louisiana in order to discover a place to fit in and the audience is faced directly with the corruption of white society as well as the culpability of a society that allows race to determine the possibilities open to its citizens the devastating noir thematic in Devil in a Blue Dress is that the dream of equal race relations has not been furthered by the northern migration of Southern Blacks, or by the national ideology of equality that justified World War II. Mm-hmm. And I think that resonates for me, again, in relation to like Lovecraft Country, which Lovecraft Country is about Jim Crow America, but it doesn't take place in the South. It no, takes place in, in, the, in the North. Yeah. It takes place in Chicago. It takes place in Boston. Yep. It takes place in all of these places where things were supposed to be better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think... I think the Great Migration revealed a lot of things, one of them being that, you know, escaping sort of de jure segregation and Jim Crow didn't mean that there was a sort of promised land on the other side. There were more opportunities, Mm -hmm. but you were still black in Chicago. You were still black in California. You were still, and in many states, you could, states like Oregon, where you actually couldn't go and own property. Um... So, yeah, I mean, I think it is, there are a few lies that are revealed here. It's the lie of the Great Migration. It's the lie of being of being a veteran, a, a, a black veteran and returning home and thinking that you would be welcomed as a hero and a fighter for your country. And yet mm-hmm. that was a lie. And I mean, that line of Denzel's about Carter, it was interesting because it was, it's it made it as if both Carter as the white man and um, Daphne, Daphne were, as, victims. were victims of something. It's like, well, no, Carter could have married her, right. quite frankly, and if he, but he didn't want to. Right. Um, yeah, she actually thinks he's going to marry her mm-hmm. at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she has a... Rude awakening. She thinks the problem is the blackmail. And so she gets the pictures of the other candidate, and then she can neutralize that threat of the blackmail, and then they can go ahead and get married. Mm -hmm. And no, turns out, not so much. No, no. He was not going to marry her. He was definitely not going to, you know, she was not going to be the mother of his children, because Mm -hmm. that would mean his children were black. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's probably... One moment that was just like, well, like he is not the victim. Right. Um, but no, I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I know what you mean about that line of saying the color mm-hmm. line goes both ways. Mm-hmm. 
but I think the movie judges him pretty harshly. Because there's that last scene where he says to Easy, he says, just so you know, I really I do her. love her. Yeah. And Easy just turns around and walks right. away from him. Like, it's right. the fuck you love her. Yeah. This is not how someone in love <laughs> treats the person they love. Right. And it's actually interesting because when you said at the beginning that the book sort of goes through the 60s or the 70s. The novels go the novels through, yeah. Go through the, it would have been interesting to see what you spoke about earlier, the sort of change of neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Because I actually thought the end of the film was really powerful when um, Easy has the voiceover about, you know, I sat, I was with my friend on my porch yes. of my home, you know, and this idea of pride of ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but hearing you talk about, oh, well, they had to remove the bars before they could start filming in that neighborhood because that neighborhood become, became some, sort of something totally different. Yeah, I haven't read the later books, but I do know that they, they go through like, like the Watts riots right. and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I think, like like I said, I think the latest book, and I don't know how many more of these. He's got other series going now with other characters. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's writing any more Easy Rollins novels, but I think the last one was in about 1968. What'd you make of the Mad Gardener guy? I don't know what was going on there. <laughs> I, don't I don't know why he was randomly cutting down trees. <laughs> Just this guy that wanders the neighborhood. Just chopping people's trees down. <laughs> It was very odd. He reminded me of, like, the guys on the highway that want to clean your windshield, and you don't want them to clean your windshield. <laughs> Only what he wants to do is chop Hat down. Your fucking trees down. down. Like, what trees. is this dude's deal? Yeah, I don't, not quite sure what that character was. But that pride of ownership thing you were talking about, I do think that's throughout the movie, too. Even with, like, Joppy and his bar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got this beautiful marble countertop that he says his uncle left to him that is obviously, like, his pride and yeah. joy. And... When when Easy wants to get information out of Joppy, he doesn't threaten him. No, no, he, he brings in a hammer and starts hitting yeah. on the bar top, which kind of made me feel bad for Joppy. Yeah. Denzel and I need to and I need to figure out how to do some research about this. Maybe the most articulate angry person on film. Anytime mm. Denzel is a, a character of Denzel's is angry, mm-hmm. it's he's very articulate and very, just, he, becomes, he becomes more articulate. <laughs> he seems to become more. It's just very. Uh, it's actually and and there's a way that he like hits a table because he when the when the white guys came into his home and after they left he sort of slams his hand on the table. Yeah, and it's sort of the same yeah. thing he does in Malcolm X. I feel like there's something in there about how Denzel portrays rage that's really interesting <laughs> I need to give it some thought but yeah there you go I think that would be a good scholarly article <laughs> it would not write. be a good scholarly article <laughs> the rage of Denzel the Washington the rage of Denzel Washington colon something else yeah alright anything else to say about this movie anything we haven't talked about yet would you ride with Mouse absolutely <laughs> you just have to know what you're getting into that's all <laughs> that's actually the question that ends up he, he asks his friend Odell he's like if you have a friend Right. <laughs> He's done some bad things. You Can you still, still be his friend? It's like friends are very important. All you got is your friends. All you got is your friends. Says. You need you need one of each. You need somebody <laughs> that, yeah, can help you get rid of some shit if you need something <laughs> handled. And it's like you get to keep your hands clean, essentially. So, you know, just know who you're inviting to the party. It's a crime that Don Cheadle never got to play that character again. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck the Marvel movies. <laughs> that's our show we want to thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the unenthusiastic critic Nikia, i actually don't know what the next movie we're going to watch is but i do know what kind of movie <laughs> it's going to be mm-hmm. our next episode will drop the first week in october and that means it's time once again for our annual halloween movie marathon 
And to mark this special occasion, we are going to go back to a weekly schedule at least for October. I didn't agree to that. <laughs> you did. You might have been drunk, but you agreed to it. So we will be watching four horror movies throughout October. Are you excited? You know what? You know this is the worst time so, of the year for me. Third annual, fourth annual, I don't even know what annual I don't even understand how we have not point. run out of horror films at this point. No, I mean, the reason I don't know what the next movie is is I'm having trouble narrowing it down at mm -hmm. this point, so... Because nothing is good left. Nothing. There's, it's all <laughs> there's, trash. There's so many good things left. If you out there have suggestions, please send them in. We'll see if we can fit it in here. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, and subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. In any of these places, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch.